Hey, not past it, listeners. This week, we're bringing you an oldie but a goodie about the stunning rise of Madame Tussaud, the mother of celebrity wax figures. She started out making death masks of the recently executed during the French Revolution. Like, she'd literally hold a decapitated head in her lap so she could make the most accurate Marie Antoinette mask or whatever. Hey, it'd be like that sometimes. And then she pivoted to making wax figures of alive celebrities. And thank goodness, because what would we do without a Madame Tussauds wax museum in every major tourist center? That's not a world I'd want to live in. Join us as we go behind the scenes of this wacky, waxy world and learn about the Madame behind the museum. We'll be back next week with another new episode of Not Past It. Until then, enjoy. Selena Quintanilla's necklace was broken. Audrey Hepburn's dress was shredded somehow. I don't know how. It looks like an animal got to her. But we can. Animals in here? They're often not animals in here, so I don't know how that happened. We're trying to figure it out. I'm at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum with producer Olivia Briley. We're getting a behind-the-scenes tour from Matt Hillshorst. It's his job to take care of the wax figures, but when it comes to avid fans. There's only so much he can do. Somebody just took Justin Timberlake's head. Oh, whoa. Right off the body and walked out the door and it has never been found. JT, headless or not, is one of the many celebrities you'll find in wax at the museum's multiple locations. We're here at the New York one, bright and early before the doors open to the public. We quietly step through a dark maze of hallways and past rooms full of A-listers. Look, there's Jennifer Hudson. She's got sparkly, pointy nails on. The nails she wore to the Met Gala. She loved them so much, she asked for her wax figure to model them forever. I had to take her hands off and send them to her nail artist in Chicago and then work with her to put the exact jewels that she gave her for the Met Gala onto her figures' fingers, so. Okay, sending your hands out of state for a manicure? I didn't know the icon meter even went that high. We pass through the morning show section. Wendy Williams beams from her signature purple chair. Oprah, mic in hand, dons the same glasses she wore in that famous Meghan Markle interview. Everyone you'd expect is here. Until we turn the corner and find ourselves face to face with a tiny old woman. The Marie Tussaud room. In a dim room lit by a spotlight is Madame Tussaud in the flesh, or I guess in the wax. She looks like a dressed down version of Marie Antoinette, a big skirt over a petticoat, her hair tall, white, and powdered. The Madame behind the museum, the woman who gave us this wax world all these years later, was a real person. And she went on to change the nature of celebrity forever. Ever, 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 ever. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On December 1st, 1761, 
261 years ago this week, Marie Tussaud was born, the real woman behind the wax. Today, we're telling the story of how she helped create the celebrity machine that still powers our culture all these years later. So make sure to exfoliate because we're about to get waxed after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with celebrities. When I was a kid, I lived in Amsterdam for a few years. And of all the world-renowned museums across the city, the Rembrandt Museum, the Van Gogh Museum, the one I cared about the most was Madame Tussauds. My parents were hesitant to encourage celebrity worship in their little one. But finally, at the ripe old age of 11, they decided it was time. I'd get my celebrity fix. It was everything I dreamed of. I bet there's an old digital camera somewhere with pictures of me posing Charlie's Angel style with Lucy Liu, my girl Drew, and Cameron D. All these years later, I've returned to the promised land. Turns out, it's in Times Square. I just assumed all this time that Madame Tussaud was like Betty Crocker, a woman made up to push a brand. But this waxy institution was actually built by an actual Madame Tussaud. Before the giant museums, Madame Tussaud was Marie Grossholtz. She was born in Strasbourg, France in 1761 to a single mother. Her father, a public executioner, died just before she was born. Marie claimed in her memoirs that her family was upper crust, basically the 1%. Though, let's just say, her memoirs don't seem to be fact-checked. But come on. You don't become Madame Tussaud without a little embellishment. In reality, after Marie's father died, her mom went to work for someone who did have fancy credentials. Here's Pamela Pillbeam, historian and author of the book, Madame Tussaud and the History of Waxworks. Her mother was the housekeeper for a wax showman called Philip Curtius. Philippe Curtius was a doctor turned wax sculptor. Back in the late 1700s, wax was used to replicate cadavers for medical studies. So it wasn't an unusual career change to make back then. And Curtius was good at it. He started making molds of living people, which he showcased in two popular exhibits in Paris. Exhibits like these were favorites at fairgrounds, but Curtius was putting on a more elevated version. And after years of watching him work, Marie, now a teen, started training in the art of waxwork. And she met a lot of the famous people who he modeled and worked with. Duke's philosophers and members of the royal family were Curtius's clients and friends. His exhibits were popular places for the elites to hang out and talk philosophy while admiring the wax. 
Marie had connections and a ton of natural talent. So when she turned 18, she finagled a job as an art tutor to none other than Louis XVI's sister. She claims she even moved into the palace at Versailles, though that part might be some classic Marie um, enhancement. She may have occasionally visited the royal court, but she certainly wasn't a royal employee. This is one of those high claims that look good in her memoirs. No matter the strength of her connection to the monarchy, this was 1780s France. Being royal adjacent wasn't a good thing. Ever heard of this little thing called the French Revolution? Marie, you in danger, girl. The revolution kicked off in 1789, and it took its bloodiest turn when a guy named Maximilien Robespierre, a radical statesman, came into power. He hated the monarchy, and he wanted them and all their supporters to be punished for living the high life while the common folk suffered. He got his way in the form of 17,000 executions in roughly a year. When anyone was being executed, there would be crowds queuing up to watch the execution. People loved seeing other people's heads being taken off. Executions typically went like this. The traitor in question would be escorted from a prison cell to the town square. A wooden stage would be waiting there, empty except for a guillotine. Beside it, a basket to catch the head once it went flying. The drop of the blade itself was short and sweet. And then the crowd would disperse. So where was Marie during all this? As a royal associate, she could have lost her head. But Marie was spared because she was useful to the revolution's leaders. After an execution, Marie would swoop in. She'd scoop up the head, trot over to the steps of the courteous wax exhibition, and get out her mold-making tools. She talks about sitting at the foot of the Goulevard du Temple, making a wax head from the severed head of the enemy of the revolution who'd been guillotined. This young woman would sit there with, I presume, a very bloody apron, making the wax mold from the actual severed head. Wow. Marie clearly had a strong stomach, especially because some of the heads were of the very elites she used to rub shoulders with, like Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. But this kind of aggressive grossness was necessary because the whole point of the wax exhibition was accuracy, as in not from memory and not from pictures either because photography hadn't been invented yet. So Marie would make molds of the recently executed, better known as death masks. The waxworks became a bit like the 10 o'clock news. Marie's work would keep the public informed about who was in and who was out. And by out, I mean like, you know, dead. If you wanted to know what had happened recently in the revolution, you would go to the waxworks to have a look and the models of the people who'd recently been involved would be there in the exhibition. In 1794, power shifted again when Robespierre was arrested by France's new leaders. And when he was executed, 
Marie got right to work on his head's replica. That same year, Marie's mentor, Philippe Curtius, died, and he left her a special inheritance, his entire wax exhibition. This meant she now owned hundreds of wax figures, and more importantly, the molds from which she could make more. Marie decided to take her show out of the country, and she had a very good reason to leave France, her husband. He'd given her two sons, the Tussauds name, and not much else. When it came to Marie's income, the civil code in France favored the man of the house. While she was with her husband in France, all of the money that she earned was his. Yeah, F that. The only way Marie would get to keep her earnings was to leave France. So at the turn of the century, she packed her bags, a few personal items, her oldest son, and the entirety of the wax exhibition she'd inherited and expanded. She crossed the English Channel and started touring the waxworks for a whole new audience. Turns out, Frenchies weren't the only ones going crazy for wax. You can actually see the sense of wanting to go to a wax exhibition pre-photography because people otherwise would have no idea what Napoleon or Louis XVI or Marie Antoinette looked like. Marie's traveling exhibition hit all the touristy towns of the British Isles, and she featured big British events, like recreating the crowning of Queen Victoria. Most people didn't see the coronation. You haven't got the stuff like we have nowadays, you know, television, etc. So a wax exhibition was a way of doing that. Marie's waxwork stood out from her contemporaries. Her figures were known for their impeccable detail. She even got her subjects real clothes. At first she had to buy them, but then people started to give their clothes because her exhibition became well known. She negotiated with the queen for a copy of the gown that she wore for both her coronation and for her marriage. Marie was a shark when it came to business. She brought in her exhibition to more than just royals and nobles, started including real 15 minutes of fame types. And whenever she toured, she made sure everybody knew about it, with newspaper ads, posters, and even some of the first mass transit ads. Madame Tussauds exhibition, one of the most interesting sites in London, is now open in the Lothar rooms. Marie's exhibition toured around the UK for three decades. Finally, in 1835, at the age of 74, she decided it was time to set down roots and give the exhibition a permanent home right in the heart of London. Instead of slowing down, maybe thinking about retirement, Marie was just ramping up. After the break, Tussauds becomes a global phenomenon. Plus, we'll talk to a real-life celebrity who's had the honor of getting waxed. There's people every day that come up and say, I saw you in Madame Tussauds. Welcome back, my celebutants. 
Before the break, Marie Tussaud, now officially the madame of her own wax empire, was finally setting down roots in London. She chose the biggest space at the Baker Street Bazaar, a set of old buildings around a courtyard used for horse sales. And she hired her two adult sons to make wax figures alongside her. In this new space, Marie leaned into the niche she'd honed in her French Revolution days, notoriety. One of the main attractions was the so-called second room, dubbed the Chamber of Horrors. It was a basement filled with criminals, serial killers, all the most notorious bad guys. Criminals, sentenced to death and eager for infamy, happily promised Marie the very clothes they would be executed in. As soon as the execution is over, the clothes will be taken off, rushed to Baker Street, and put on the model as soon as possible. Historian and author Pamela Pilbeam again. The criminals liked that, even though they were dead, the thought that it made them famous. Every morning, Marie would leave her house, cross the cobblestone road, and open the museum to the public. She kept a chair next to the front door. She always sat at the entrance taking the money, and she wouldn't let anyone else touch the money. Marie sold tickets at three different prices. The standard tier, a more expensive touching tier for those who wanted to get up close and personal with the figures. And for the last hour of the day, she sold half-price tickets. Now no one had a reason not to come. Every night, she'd count up the day's profits and decide which wax figures earned their keep. The duds would be replaced by new, more exciting celebrities. And when the invention of photography did eventually come around, it only added to the popularity of her business. And I'll tell you what is most significant once you've got photography, which is in the 19th century, is being photographed standing next to the model. That was something that people loved to be able to do. Ah, yes, the ancestor of the selfie, if you will. Without a pedestal to stand on, the rich and famous were brought down to earth, and regular people could throw an arm around Napoleon's shoulder, see if his height really warranted the complex that was named after him. By then, it was the late 1830s, and Marie was at the peak of her success. Everyone from school kids to actual royals visited Marie's exhibition, by now officially named Madame Tussauds. Apparently, the Duke of Wellington spent a lot of time with Napoleon's wax figure. So much so that after the Duke died, Marie created a wax figure of the Duke and placed him opposite wax Napoleon so he could continue to fanboy in the afterlife. By the 1840s, Marie was in her 80s and getting ready to hand over her wax empire to her two sons. After granting immortality to hundreds of people through her wax works, she decided to craft one last model, herself. Marie pulled no punches in her self-portrait. Remember, accuracy above all else. Her figure sat wearing a black Victorian bonnet at the front of the museum, so the first wax figure you'd see would be the creator of all the rest. In 1850, Marie died at the age of 88. 
her sons ran the business, and then her grandchildren. Over a hundred years later, in 1970, the family expanded to a second location in Amsterdam. Eight years after that, Madame Tussauds was sold to the first of a series of conglomerates. That's when it really went global. The first U.S. location opened in, where else, Las Vegas in 1999. Dozens of museums followed. A celebration at Madame Tussauds on the Las Vegas Strip. Flava Flav hosted a party as a museum. The big day. We're finally open to the public. They're everywhere, from Orlando to Istanbul, 25 in total. And to fill all those museums, you need celebrities. We wanted to know what it was like to be one of the stars who got made into wax. So we called one up. Hello. Hey. This is actor Danny Trejo. His voice is almost as recognizable as his face. It was never a dream, but it was the prize. Everybody knows who is in Madame Trousseau's. Maybe you've seen him in the Machete movies, Breaking Bad, or the cinematic masterpiece, Spy Kids. Check it out, the very latest Spy Watch. Total communication center right there on your... He was immortalized in wax in 2019. And the modern process is a lot different. You're on a round little thing that turns. And they're taking picture, 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 picture. They, like, measure every part. You know, like, measure nose to eye, eye, hair, eye, hair, everything, forehead, nose to lips, how wide your eyebrow. I mean, literally everything. Danny has a signature tattoo on his chest. The names of his family, just above a giant portrait of a topless woman in a sombrero. So Madame Tussauds opted to make his figure shirtless, arms stretched wide. It took months. Madame Tussauds has always been so insanely meticulous, meticulous about, look, he's got that birthmark, you know. (laughs) Hey, he's got that scar, you know, and... I've got a, a wound that God nobody even knows about, and and they got it on. <laughs> the process of getting waxed, as the museum calls it, is an intense one. There's a team of about twenty artists in London. There's like two people that make the clay sculptures, and then those are made into molds. Matt Hillshorst, the museum's manager here in Times Square explains that the process is extensive and done by a whole group of specialists. And then there's like a team of people that will be just hair inserters or people that will make just the eyeballs or work just on the teeth. There's a person that just will paint their face and then somebody that works in the costume department that will work on their outfit. These wax figures are expensive to make, around $300,000 on average. Celebrities ask to be taller, or to have their hairlines moved down, or to get a new wax nose to match the new real nose on their face. For a celebrity like Danny Trejo, it must be jarring seeing yourself in 3D, frozen. So if you had to grade your figure, what grade would you give it? A, I would give it an A plus. Madame Tussauds claims they don't pay their subjects. So for a busy celebrity, 
Why would you say yes to such a time-intensive request? Wouldn't you rather have awards or something to beef up your IMDb page? Oscar probably makes a good doorstop, but it's just it's just a trophy. But th unless it gets 150 degrees, Madame Tussaud, it's going to stay there forever. Madame Tussauds might be around forever. Celebrity itself, though, isn't exactly permanent. At Madame Tussauds, people get taken off the floor all the time for lots of reasons. Maybe they're not working enough. Maybe they're working, but their movies or their music aren't. Or maybe they've crossed a line in their personal lives. Madame Tussauds makes a point not to judge. In the Times Square location, just like all the others, their concern is the wax figures and how much they can withstand. Take Will Smith, for example. Poor Will Smith. <laughs> After that slap, people... People they... slap him back? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like... Yeah, After he slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars this year, the public responded by slapping his wax figure back. Kanye West, on the other hand, was taken off the floor entirely after making a slew of anti-Semitic comments. Matt Lauer went into storage after his sexual harassment scandal, but Michael Jackson enjoys prime real estate on the floor. Madame Tussauds has a line for sure, but it's just as blurry as the larger celebrity machines. It just depends on how relevant they still are. If they've like done something that's egregious, we will most likely take them off the floor and then they won't be seen again. <laughs> Matt's exaggerating. They famously don't melt down their wax figures because Madame Tussauds knows that celebrities come back into fashion all the time. So they hold on to the spare parts, just in case. I can bring you over here and show you where we keep all the body parts. <laughs> We push past a set of doors and enter a room lit by fluorescence. A crowd of headless bodies stands off to one side, and disembodied heads line the shelves all around us. We, we keep the bodies, we keep the parts, because you never know when that person may be relevant again. Or something like this, like Al Roker has lost a ton of weight. So then we've recreated a new Al Roker, but then we'll just hang on to this body just in case. Al Roker's old body stands in a line with a bunch of others. Dan Rather, Daniel Craig, other famous Dans, probably. We can't tell because they don't have heads, just names stamped into their waxy torsos. Uh, so then we have, like, just drawers. There's drawers of spares and a filing cabinet in the corner. Hands, spare arms, that's what's up here. Jennifer Hudson's extra hands, the ones without her sparkly nails, share a drawer with J. Edgar Hoover's. It's just easier once they're labeled and put away to just keep them there, just in case. You never know. You just really never know. So it ends up being Call it fascination. Call it intrigue. Call it obsession. But celebrity is still what keeps bringing people back to Madame Tussauds more than 200 years later. Here's the thing about wax. It's easy to shape. An artist presses their fingers into it, and suddenly it has meaning. It's a sculpture of a baby. It's a death mask. It's Danny Trejo. You can knock it over, steal it, or take a picture with it. 
It changes over time, just like the people it imitates. And yet, it's more permanent than any celebrity, whether they die or just stop being famous. Marie Tussaud scratched a voyeuristic itch that hasn't gone away since the French Revolution. She created a temple devoted to celebrating our weird obsession with fame and status. And that's why Madame Tussauds lasts. When she made her own wax figure near the end of her life, Marie herself joked that she was just as famous as the rest of her figures. She got close enough to fame to take down its details and backed away as soon as she got what she needed. In return, she got what she cared about most, immortality. Madame Tussaud, you will always be famous. Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Olivia Briley. Next week, we delve into the dark history of far-right extremism in the U.S. and bring you a story from the new Vice News and Gimlet podcast, American Terror. We did consider ourselves trailblazers in the sense that if God called us to do something, nobody could do it better than us. That was our frame of mind. Our associate producers are Ramoy Phillip and Nick Del Rose. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Katie Feather. Andrea B. Scott is our executive editor. Fact-checking by Ian Michael. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Brittany Williams, Tiago Mogaduro, Gloria Inojosa, Michael Castillo, Terry O'Lear, and Edward Carey. And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Ariel Joseph, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Personally, and it's not ego, but I think it's one of the best ones there. I mean, you can tell it's John Wayne, you can tell it's Charlie Chaplin, but it's like you know it's Danny Trejo.